accidentally lied at the end of my second video on the Gulag Archipelago. I said that we had finished volume one, which is true, but that we had started part two when actually we started and finished part two because it was very short. For all of you who have been patiently waiting, this is just a reminder of what the Gulag Archipelago is before we jump into everything. The Gulag Archipelago is a three volume seven part account on communism in russia the soviet union under stalin rule from 1918 to 1956 so far we have covered volume one out of three volumes and we have covered parts one to two out of seven parts volume one covered what happened after the revolution the arrests and interrogation that happened the famous line of good and evil being drawn in the heart of every man and the development of the law and then what that finally ended up in the slavery and the camp labor the gulag archipelago itself refers to the labor camps that existed at this period in russia under the soviet union so in this video we are starting volume two part three chapters one to twelve i'm going to be recapping each chapter to give you the main points and then giving you my general thoughts and comments and remembering to end with a quote oh my god what am i doing Volume 1 dealt with the growth of the horrors of the Soviet Union and the Gulag Archipelago. And then Volume 2 goes into detail about what exactly was occurring. Part 3 is called the Destructive Labor Camps and it's a play on the words corrective labor camp because you're destroying the human soul rather than correcting anything. One could argue that that still happens today and it's very important to remember that this occurred under soviet rule which was sprung forth from a communist revolution which adamantly argued that it would not be what it ended up being i will be sharing detailed notes for people who support this channel you can go to justthinkingoutloud.tv support and make a contribution there so let's begin part three the destructive labor camps chapter one is titled the fingers of the aurora it's very clear that the text feels a little different. So this chapter talks about the beginnings of the existence of labor camps and trying to define when exactly they started. There was a BBC report, that's a British Broadcasting Commission report that shocked people that labor camps had existed since 1921. Solzhenitsyn makes it clear that forced labor was a feature and not a bug and prisons were one of the first institutions for the proletariats to use to rise up against the bourgeoisie according to Marx and Engels. Lenin stated that the minority had to be exploited by the majority in justice. Harsh punishment sentences seem to come from the purity of the ideology and this made me think about how it's impossible for people to talk to others in modern times with different points of views and that it's difficult to be an individual because you have to be in the hive mind which in the Soviet Union's case is the party line. The general narrative here is that the system didn't seem to actually change. There were just new rulers after the revolution. There were the same prison guards, the same judges sentencing people to prison, and the same prisons being used. The original government after the revolution had parties other than the Bolsheviks who won the communist revolution, but then the left social revolutionaries and the Bolsheviks kicked the rest of them out and then the Bolsheviks kicked the left social revolutionaries out. Concentration camps, which were at one point for prisoners of war, 
then became used for doubtful citizens of a nation. Before the Soviet Union, prisoners were, in a lot of cases, actually treated better, and there were proposals to pay them for their labor, for example, and as you'll see later in the text, to give them proper work days, and all of that vanished under the Gulag system. Some labor camps were set up in monasteries. Labor camps existed from very early on. By the end of 1920, there were 84 camps in 43 provinces. Solzhenitsyn says that if one believes the official statistics, even though they are classified, 25,336 persons and an additional 24,400 prisoners of war of the civil war were held in prisons at this time, but that's probably not accounting for people being sunk in ships and other types of mass killings that happened and aren't recorded anywhere. It's difficult to analyze exactly where the Gulag system came from, but there were multiple prison systems at first, and they all eventually ended up coming under the title of one, the GOMZAK, the Chief Administration for Places of Imprisonment, immediately after October 1917. The chapter basically tries to do the difficult job of outlining how the labor system began and when, and it's difficult to do, as you can see. Chapter 2 of Part 3 is titled, The Archipelago Rises from the Sea. After you figure out the beginnings with the fingers of the aurora, this is the archipelago emerging forth, and he uses the sea because there's a special place called the Solovetsky Islands, which was once a monastery, and that became part of the archipelago for church and political heretics. So that was one of the first places where certain destructive norms emerged from. Of course, anything valuable was taken from these monasteries. Solzhenitsyn describes things like sledges and carts being drawn by men rather than horses. There are also punishment cells where prisoners have to balance on their arms lengths, poles horizontally laying when their feet couldn't reach the floor or prisoners would be tied to logs and then rolled down 365 steep steps of stairs, or prisoners might have to sit on sharp boulders, or they might have to wade up to their necks in march muck, or their legs could be tied to shafts pulled by horses. And this camp, this monastery on the Solovetsky Islands, this was an early experimental camp. It had its own publication and newspaper mill since it had been a monastery before, so it could use existing infrastructure. And this was in stark contrast to the actual harsh reality of torture, prisoners not being artistic but forced to work, and prisoners being cruelly shot. The number of prisoners was much more than administrators because Moscow kept sending prisoners. There was torture that helped keep the prisoners in line, and the prisoners themselves had to guard each other with squad leaders and platoon commanders. There were jokes in the public magazine about signs of the prison system not being entirely established yet. And there was a very specific story of a man asking for three days to be shot so that he could let his wife visit without her finding out what was going to happen to him. Certain inconsistencies like this only were able to happen because this was the beginning of the cruelty of the Gulag system. After destroying some of the infrastructure that the monks had built, there was a lack of food. Prisoners were all made to look the same, their beards were cut, and so on. So the Solovetsky Islands, also called Solovki, <laughs> it's hard to pronounce these Russian words, had characteristics of the future archipelago to come. People knew not to trust anyone, prison labor was taken for granted by the free people, and not a lot is known about logging operations compared to what happened in the former monasteries because those people didn't live. 
Based on the original Solovetsky Islands, escape was difficult for many prisons because they tended to be surrounded by the sea. There's a story of a prisoner hiding that he knew English and then telling Englishmen on a ship that was being loaded with timber what was happening. And so the ship was delayed for a week. And whenever a search party was sent out to find the prisoner, the prisoner was lowered overboard on an anchor chain on the opposite side and held underwater while holding a breathing pipe in his teeth. There's a famous writer of the time named Gorky who is sent to visit the prison to make the malicious rumors about prison conditions disappear, prove them to be untrue since they didn't match with Russian propaganda. And so everyone presented a false front and although one boy told the truth, Gorky lied and defended the archipelago. There's a bit of a joke described about women thieves and prostitutes. So women thieves would yell at prostitutes that they did steal but they didn't sell themselves. And then the prostitutes would say, well, they sell what belonged to them and not what was stolen. Juveniles under 16 came to camp. Prisoners became workers and former thieves became, quote, inveterate repeaters, murderers, and cutthroats suddenly emerged in the role of economy-minded managers skilled technical directors and capable cultural workers and quote there were communes that were formed that excluded political prisoners also known as article 58ers and there was shock work and socialist competition meaning that these people who did this special work had privileges and lied about their output numbers the 58ers or political prisoners were sent away from the mother salofi camp or solovetsky island camps um, to form new camps. Chapter 3 is titled The Archipelago Metastasizes. So we've seen the beginning of the archipelago and now it begins to take form. And just remember that this archipelago is a very dark archipelago. Kind of important to keep in mind exactly what he's talking about when he says archipelago. The government decided to make prison conditions harsher for class enemies. Unemployment was abolished. <laughs> and there were plans to make new camps because they were expecting an increase in arrests. Camp laborers were no longer compensated for their work, since their work just belonged to the collective, meaning the state. Between 1923 and 1930, the number of prisoners at the initial Solovki camp grew from 3,000 to 50,000, and 30,000 were in another place called Kem. The number of camps began to increase, starting with expeditions for petroleum prospecting, for example, and then that later branched off. So you would start one camp somewhere to do some specific thing, and then that became a permanent camp, and then you, you, you like branch off to another place. There was a system of organization that emerged. There were camp divisions, camp administrations, and departments in divisions, like production, records, and classification. Monasteries were especially useful to create camps due to their isolation. Here's a quote I like. Millions of miles of barbed wire ran on and on, the strands crisscrossing one another and interweaving. Their barbs twinkling gaily along railroads, highways, and around the outskirts of cities. And the peaked roofs of ugly camp watchtowers became the most dependable landmarks in our landscape. And it was only by a surprising concatenation of circumstances that they were not seen in either the canvases of our artists or in scenes in our films. There is a man named Brenko who helped outline the plan for extracting labor from workers, including the idea of using workers up in the first three months and dividing prisoners into groups A, B, C, and D, meaning people not engaged in providing essential services for the camp, people not verified as being ill, people not undergoing correction in a punishment cell, and D, someone who must drag his workload. 
Although Frankel did this outline, prisoners being used for hard labor was a concept that existed as far back as 1918. There is one specific reference source that did not exclude the existence of camp watchtowers and other evidence of the archipelago called the White Sea Baltic Stalin Canal. The book was written through coercion by and about people who built the canal. The writers of this White Sea Baltic Canal book, they admitted the fact that people died building the Bellamore Canal which was the first significant construction project for the archipelago. After the Bellamore Canal was the Moscow Volga Canal. And for this canal, workers were not only forced to work to the brink of death, but compelled to be happy and chirp about things and praise what they were doing and claim that they would expose wreckers. At this point, the prison camp system is established and the focus is on indoctrination as well as violence. There is language used by the state to describe workers as the worst human raw material being put to use. Productive labor could be used for people who were not readily swayed to support socialism. There were political readings even during lunch and some intellectuals rose to top management positions. Women worked. There was limited equipment and early deadlines to be met by engineers. Newspapers praised the building of the Bellamore Canal. Collective responsibility was cited as the only way to reform society to the nobility of socialism. Everyone loses due to one person. And so in that way, workers were motivated to keep watching each other. And spontaneous re-education or psychological enrichment could happen through the collective. There was canal army music as well that was written to praise the canal, part of the mandatory enthusiasm. Of course, just a side note about collective responsibility. How can collective responsibility exist when people don't act as a collective? Each person acts in his own decision. Like each person makes an action and then should be able to receive the reaction based on his own action. This reminds me of the student debt debate, not whether or not others should be helped or not, but if the collective should be used in order to socialize the costs while only the individuals reap the benefits. Chapter 4 is called The Archipelago Hardens. The Prosecutor General of the Soviet Union said that socialism would arrive and that the state would resolve after the maximum intensification of state power, which could be seen as the maximum use of prisons. That's a hard limit to define, I would say. Humanitarian allowances for prisoners, like professional and technical courses, the repatriation of dead bodies, even for priests, and prisoners getting wages, all of that was removed. The corrective labor code was removed because hypocritical bourgeoisie society had thought up these allowances, such as prison inspections, and societies in Tsarist Russia had advocated for raising prisoners' moral and statures. All of that had to disappear. The camps became more formal, modern, and strict. A description is provided here of prisoners being so hungry that they ate the corpse of a horse, they ate Iceland moss as if they were there, and lubrication grease. Prisoners were beaten, forced to drill by hand in the cold, and so on, especially for not meeting the norm, that's work quotas. Thieves kept guard and did the monitoring. Prisoners were also isolated and locked into carriages to die. Women had punishments that were lighter, like being forced to stay in unheated tents at night. So this was cruel, if not more cruel, than the origins in Solevsky, these practices. There were executions by shootings in mass graves. 
and prisons also became stricter in terms of adding on time to existing term sentences. The war affected the archipelago. Prisoners were needed because they needed manpower. Sometimes being returned to prison in the process of being released, they had to work more and eat less. During the war, political prisoners were given extra sentences just because. The original Solovki camp moved, but not before throwing off a new chute or metastasizing, as Solzhenitsyn puts it. The archipelago began to creep into the unpeopled deserts of Kazakhstan and further north. Whole villages became enclosed to become camps. Under Frankel, who wanted to be the head, the new gulag system became more bureaucratic with different departments and so on. Solzhenitsyn goes into detail about Frankel's career, pointing out that he did not live in his creations but lived on train cars bragged about identifying 40,000 prisoners at once. Frankel died in old age in Moscow in the 50s in honor and in peace. The entire archipelago was influenced by Frankel's system and work in the Northeast. Chapter 5, What the Archipelago Stands On Camps sprung up independently from cities and the archipelago grew on top of them, usually born out of economic need from the state for manpower that was free. Labor that was free of family ties or needs for amenities, and labor that was cheap. Solzhenitsyn talks about Marx and Engels placing human life as revolving around work, and that this theoretical justification was needed in order to force people to work. Productive labor was actually the best way for correcting offenders, although Marx himself had never held a pick to work. Solzhenitsyn explains the theory behind the camps and the gulag justifying difference between bourgeois punishment and genuine reform through the Marx-Engel communism ideology is through conscientious labor. So there's no individual guilt, only class causation. Therefore, there's no point in correction. There's no guilt or punishment, but there's social danger and social defense. So people could be arrested for being social dangers. There had actually been a prison code that talked about humane treatment for prisoners, such as torture not being used and undignified treatment not occurring. But no prison guard knew about this code, although it was quoted in foreign American journals. <laughs> this was funny when I read it. It seemed like a solid diss to foreigners believing Russian propaganda, which he mentions over and over in the text. Listen to this one. What an intelligent, far-sighted, humane administration from top to bottom is said by the Supreme Court Judge Leibowitz of New York State in Life magazine after having visited Gulag. And then Solzhenitsyn says, Oh fortunate New York State to have such a perspicacious jackass for a judge. Here's another quote. Oh you well-fed, devil-may-care, nearsighted, irresponsible foreigners with your notebooks and your ballpoint pens, beginning with those correspondents who back in camp asked the Zex questions in the presence of the camp chiefs. How much you have harmed us in your vain passion to shine with understanding in areas where you did not grasp a lousy thing. Human dignity of persons condemned without trial, who are made to sit down beside stoily-pinned cars at stations with their rear ends in the mud, who at the whistle of a citizen jailer's lash scrape up their hands the urine-soaked earth and carry it away so as not to be sentenced to the punishment block, of those educated women who, as a great honor, have been found worthy of laundering the lading of the citizen chief of the camp and of feeding his privately owned pigs, and who, at his first drunken gesture, have to make themselves available so as not to perish on general work the next day. There's a touching story about a girl being punished because she publicly 
wished a camp escapee well. A comparison can be made of the archipelago to slavery and serfdom. The camp chief is the owner of an estate and the laborers don't have a day to work for themselves since all the work is unpaid. The chief or estate owner could have anyone as a worker, lackey, housekeeper, jester, or concubine. And in fact, serfs had more than prisoners, such as their own places to stay, having holidays, Sundays off, belongings, clothes of their own, and the possibility of alternative work, families, and the owners of good treatment from the owner due to their work being valued. Old Russia had experienced Asiatic slavery for seven centuries, but the poorest of those had food and had not known famine. Since voluntary work, material disinterest, and conscientiousness couldn't be depended on, <laughs> since party members didn't want to live up to their own theories, the archipelago, based on Frankel's creation, relied on three things. The differentiated rationing of food and food being used as a reward. There being two sets of bosses and the brigade or worker coalitions. Brigade leaders tended to originate from the Kulak class, in fact. Due to the impossible output standards, everyone along the process of producing lumber from timber made up numbers so that they could be fed. Chapter 6 is titled, They've Brought the Fascists. The political prisoners were nicknamed fascists by the thieves. It wasn't clear how to avoid general work and get an office job. Only women and thieves got pillows. The work shifts weren't separated, so it was difficult for people to sleep with others moving about, and the thieves would make a lot of noise and trample on other persons. The food was terrible. If tobacco is camp gold, then salt is camp silver. For Solzhenitsyn, he describes his own experience as a political prisoner entering this camp, and he lies about having commanded a battalion and is assigned to be a foreman in the clay shift. He only lasts a few days, and there's a woman who is in charge but still loyal to the Communist Party, although she'd been sentenced for eight years. She didn't actually deal with the thieves, but lived in theory. The woman doesn't have any knowledge of capacity, like in terms of making things, and just orders workers about. Some prisoners write love poems or sit and ponder at night, which is suspicious. There's one specific person called Ingol who writes but refuses to show others his love notes and short stories and thus gets beaten up as a result. The cry they brought the fascists was one that was heard all across the archipelago from regular prisoners. If political prisoners came who would not get amnesty, then other prisoners could leave. And this was around 1945. Solzhenitsyn has a particular disdain for thieves, which makes sense, and he elaborates on it many times and later dedicates an entire chapter to the thieves. Here, there's a quote where he says, All those who had burglarized apartments, stolen the clothes off passerbys, raped girls, corrupted minors, given consumers short weight, played the hoodlum, disfigured the defenseless, been wantonly destructive in forests and waterways, committed bigamy, practiced blackmail or extortion, taken bribes, swindled, slandered, written false denunciations, peddled narcotics, pimped or forced women into prostitution, whose carelessness or ignorance had resulted in the loss of life, all went scot-free. There was a husband and wife who had helped a deserter that they didn't know, and they were jailed for 20 years for being an organization of husband and wife under political indictments. They were not told why they were guilty until 20 years later, and the person that they had helped got amnesty himself. Workers, even the best workers, as in the most output, barely had any food, there was no heat in the barracks, and workers went to sleep in muddied clothes. 
in this moment where workers are stuck in the clay pit doing this forced labor, Solzhenitsyn says, somewhere young men of our age were studying at the Sorbonne or at Oxford playing tennis during their ample hours of relaxation, arguing about the problems of the world in student cafes. They were already being published and were exhibiting their paintings. They were twisting and turning to find new ways of distorting the insufficiently original world around them in some new way. They railed against the classics for exhausting all the subjects and themes. They railed at their own governments and their own reactionaries who did not want to comprehend and adopt the advanced experience of the Soviet Union. They recorded interviews through the microphones of radio reporters listened all the time to their own voices and coquettishly elucidating what they wished to say in their last or their first book. They judged everything in the world with self-assurance, but particularly the prosperity and higher justice of our country. Only at some point in their old age, in the course of compiling encyclopedias, would they notice with astonishment that they could not find any worthy Russian names for our letters, for all the letters of our alphabet. So he's just complaining again about people living in theories, especially foreigners. The rain drummed on the back of our heads and the chill crept up our wet backs. This chapter ends with a description of workers going back to their dark barracks and asking God to please send them death. Chapter 7 is titled The Way of Life and Customs of the Natives. He's referring to the natives of the archipelago. This chapter describes equipment and work. The natives' lives consisted of work, work and work until death. The highest machinery was the wheelbarrow and the handbarrow. The handbarrow hands were used to dig clay and sand to unload bricks and to break stone and coal. A person could work to cast metal, carve out tunnels for railroads, be a stableman or a drayman. The majority of workers went to the Russian forest to participate in logging. The term given for three weeks of logging was dry execution. And workers came to shudder at the thought of walking beneath pine, birch, and fir. In Tsarist Russia, there had been limits for hard labor in the normative statutes of 1869, and workdays had ranged from 6 to 12 hours per day, including the commute, depending on the season. There are some specific numbers given for the punishment block ration, which was 10.5 ounces of bread, a bowl of gruel a day. For 30 to 80% of the norm or work quota, you got 14 ounces of bread and two bowls of gruel. And for 81 to 100%, you got 17 and a half to 21 ounces of bread and three bowls of gruel. The highest ration in all of Gulag was 45 and a half ounces for 80% of norm underground given to miners or 100% on the surface. But in what was known as a horribly murderous Saris hard labor Akatui camp, on a non-working day spent on the bunk, workers used to get two and a half Russian pounds of bread, which was 35 ounces, as well as 32 Zolotniks, or 4.65 ounces of meat. And on a working day, they got three Russian pounds, or 43 ounces of bread, and 48 Zolotniks, or seven ounces of meat. So that's the comparison. Workers would carry their belongings on them while they were working in order to avoid theft, they would have their mess tins and their mugs with them. They might boil their underwear in their tins after eating from them. And they would sleep with their blankets around their necks and be wary of their hair for female prisoners freezing 
to the tents at night. There was a constant lack of privacy, which was torture because one wasn't an individual, but a member of a brigade. They couldn't behave like themselves because they were always required to act on behalf of the collective. Execs could die of hunger, of scurvy, alimentary dystrophy, and pellagra or diarrhea. There's a description of two last legger that's on the end of everything, brink of death. Engineers, one a chemist and one a geologist in conversation. A chemist explains how the necessary nutrients can be gotten from refuse after uncurling himself and being aware that he was going to be talked to rather than be beaten. And then the geologist explains that he had experimentally established that lice and flea would not breed in extremely dirty clothes and he had also picked out lots of clothes in the warm weather because he could get beaten without having bruises. The chemist had also figured out how to howl like a pig after the first blow even though not yet hurting. This was necessary because people would beat up the weak in order to not feel weak themselves. So in this way, the chemist and geologist got by without ruining their own consciences. Prisoners would try to get themselves sick and injured, but not to the point of death in order to get an early release. They might make a stew with tobacco, or they might break their legs. The most common early release was death. Workers used inventory numbers to identify bodies, but they were ordered to remove gravestones because then relatives, wives, and family would try to come and mourn. Even in camp, there was the old human custom of making friends. Sometimes there was betrayal, and the best thing was to have a camp wife. There were camp wives and all different kinds of camp women. Both women and men would have spouses and children that they would not see for eight years, for example. Eight years is a long time. Sometimes wives would come visit or spend a night or two in certain camps, but then there would be years in between these visits. Women were brought in for stealing food out of need. Stealing a spool, you could get 10 years, which was the same sentence as for treason. When there was a camp wife, I guess both the camp husband and the camp wife might have families out in freedom, and so both drag the same chain and don't complain. Chapter 8, Women in Camp. Sometimes it was exciting to glimpse women and wonder what they were like for male prisoners. Women seemed to be treated the same, if not better, than the male prisoners and were just as depressed. So it needs to be surprised that women remained concerned about things like their appearance when in prison and be interrogated, worried about stockings, hair length, and this was even for philosophical and political women, <laughs> which I found interesting. So after interrogation and beating the camp, that's when things were difficult. Everything became harder for women here, starting with them never being able to feel clean. Women were examined upon arrival naked, like the men, and they were given the option for cleanliness. As in the regular world, women were valued more highly than men and based on attractiveness. Some of the men hated this. So this option, if it wasn't clear, is about women getting attached to a certain man to help them through prison life. Some women were not choosy about getting together with men. A lot of the political prisoners who were women found the decision too difficult even compared to death but many who were propositioned gave in in the first few days both little girls i'm not sure what he means by that in terms of the exact age and married women so women in exchange for taking this option they could get positions in medicine bookkeeping laundry and so on becoming a servant to one of the chiefs was a top position so jadison asks what's the purpose of fidelity in a female corpse 
One particularly attractive woman was harassed by jailers until she gave into the pursuits of some official, although she tried not to. Women traded sex for bread with male campmates. Attractive women might have been threatened with beatings and would have to choose who to have sex with rather than refuse outright because in that way they could find who could defend them against the others. Juveniles 12 to 13 were also present when sex took place in the open with multiple partners. It seems before they then also took part themselves. Some camps were female only and the women were given rough work and were they behaved like men while they were in these camps. Some women wanted pregnancy in order to lessen prison terms and for this reason cohabitation was forbidden. Love was more spiritual in camp because of the awfulness of the space. Sometimes without physical contact, love seemed deeper. There was one case of a man who fell in love with a woman and then had a child with her and then he stayed as a free employee in order to be near them. He avoided his wife in the free world when she came to visit and tried to tell her over and over that they were divorced through letters. A child being born sometimes would split these native couples up. After breastfeeding, children were separated into a separate section. The fathers didn't see the children and sometimes the mother would leave them behind after their terms. Some children died due to not being able to adjust the artificial feeding. And some mothers, he mentions Western Ukrainians, wanted their children christened. Some women though just used the children to get out and then abandoned them as soon as possible. Life was harsher for women in the female-only camps because they had to do all the work. Women would attempt to become pregnant at even higher rates in the women-only camps. There were homosexuals and sometimes there was just platonic love where without seeing the other person, since the men were separated from the women by a wall, they would talk to each other through the wall and fall in love that way. Women were used to get men to do work, so they would bring them out to, I guess, go with the man into doing the work, and then they would like have sex for a very short time period, just like seeing each other very briefly. That was depressing. <laughs> that chapter was really depressing to read. Chapter nine is called The Trustees. So a trustee was a name given to anyone who did not get general assignment work. Trustees would elevate themselves in any way they could, sleep in different barracks, wear different clothes, have more leisure time, and so on. It seems that humans have a need to display their status, where they lie in the hierarchy. There were work trustees like engineers and norm setters, accountants and secretaries, and they were different from the compound trustees who did physical labor. So for Solzhenitsyn, the hero of his story is the slogger or general laborer. He mentions the Communist Manifesto. So Solzhenitsyn says, How does the Communist Manifesto go? The bourgeoisie has stripped off its halo every occupation, his so honored and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into its paid wage laborers. <laughs> well, at least they were paid <laughs> for lawyers, priests, poets, and men of science. They were only fit to rot doing general work. There was no place for them among the trustees. This chapter is kind of dedicated to showing how the trustees were removed from the actual life of hard labor from the regular sloggers who are the heroes of Solzhenitsyn's story. He describes many people remaining patriotic even after wartime because they didn't actually experience the reality of it since only their professional skills were needed. This chapter was a little bit boring to read and it brought some balance to me to see Solzhenitsyn berate intellectuals and engineers for a bit. Chapter 10, in place of politicals. This chapter is fascinating. After the revolution, after the original politicals had been divided, stifled, and exterminated, who took their place? 
The term enemies of the revolution became enemies of the people. Ordinary people were condemned under Article 58. Anyone could be a counter-revolutionary, helped along by the secret police. Here are a few examples that I'm taking straight out of the book. A tailor laying aside his needle stuck it into a newspaper on the wall so it wouldn't get lost and happened to stick it in the eye of a portrait of Kaganovich. A customer observed this. Article 58. 10 years. Terrorism. A saleswoman accepting merchandise from a forwarder noted it down on a sheet of newspaper. There was no other paper. The number of pieces of soap happened to fall on the forehead of Comrade Stalin. Article 58. 10 years. A tractor driver of the Zanamenka machinery and tractor station lined his thin shoes for warmth with a pamphlet about the candidate for elections to the Supreme Soviet. But a chairwoman noticed it was missing. She was responsible for the leaflets and found out who had it. KRA, counter-revolutionary agitation. 10 years. The village club manager went with his watchman to buy a bust of Comrade Stalin. They bought it. The bust was big and heavy. They ought to have carried it in a handbarrow, both of them together, but the manager's status did not allow him to. All right, well, you'll manage it if you take it slowly. And he went off ahead. The old watchman couldn't work out how to do it for a long time. Finally, he figured out how to do it. He took off his belt, made a noose for Comrade Stalin, put it around his neck, and in this way carried it over his shoulder through the village. Well, there was nothing here to argue about. It was an open and shut case. Article 58. Terrorism. 10 years. If children knocked the wrong poster off the wall accidentally, their parents got in trouble. This seems frivolous, all of this, but Solzhenitsyn points out that this was mass terror for the purpose of sentencing as many people as possible to catch the few. Section 10 of Article 58 about counter-revolutionary was the most used accusation, later named being anti-Soviet. Private thoughts in bed, prayers in church, and writings in diaries, love letters, and graffiti in toilets were places of anti-Soviet propaganda. This reminds me of the anti-racism stuff, like all your private thoughts. Section 12 of Article 58, failure to denounce, was also used frequently. Section 1, treason to the motherland, was also frequently used. People were imprisoned based on being on lists, listening to speakers in the past. <laughs> oh, have we seen a lot of lists being made recently? They could be imprisoned for reading the wrong poet. One man made a voluntary collective farm and was imprisoned because it was better than the state's collective farm and he had done it before it was mandated. He was labeled a kulak anyway. A man said his beard didn't belong to the state, even if his work did, and he was sentenced to be flogged. Some of these examples are taken from Plekhanov's book, Historia Roskul, why am I trying to pronounce this? Shechtven Misli, A History of Russian Social Thought. Solzhenitsyn says that this all seemed unbelievable to Europe, but he also says that Europe believed all the glossy pamphlets and that 50 years prior, Russians wouldn't have believed it themselves. Family members were also imprisoned under Article 58 of the nobility and of prominent intellectuals. They could be imprisoned because they didn't inform, and intellectuals were imprisoned for ideological errors. <laughs> it was premeditated in law and writing that intellectuals could be arrested without proof, unlike peasants and workers, and that hostile elements, that being the engineers, be put in conflict with more friendlier to the proletariat elements, that being the thieves. There were some politicals, however, more so than in Tsarist times, who were steadfast. 
Christians in particular were politicals who did not lose their convictions. A lot of Christians died from the beginning because they wouldn't write or say things that they didn't believe in and their stories are not accounted for. Engineers as well often refused to sign confessions of wreckings and they were shot or sentenced to work. Engineers with concentrated knowledge who Solzhenitsyn thought was the pride of the nation were shot for not saying the right thing. So Solzhenitsyn points out here again that he's trying to write for muted Russia and so doesn't want to go into detail about the Trotskyites who can write for themselves. But he does say that the Trotskyites were heroic in their idealism but probably would have had the same situation come about if they had come to power instead of Stalin. Chapter 11, The Loyalists. So Jason clarifies that political prisoners had to renounce their beliefs in comparison to orthodox communists who may want to claim the title of political prisoners. There were communists who were true to their beliefs without using their communist beliefs to be treated better in prison or without ignoring the violence committed against everyone else. And this is my comment, this is a good reminder that there are good people in every group and that people should be judged by their actual actions. But this chapter is about orthodox communists who showed their ideology to everyone, from interrogators to those in cells with them. They were all interrogators, judges, prosecutors, theoreticians, and camp officials, and so on, who had fallen from glory. So this is what chapter 11 is about. Solzhenitsyn says that we have to understand them. There's a case of a prosecutor having to work, still dressed in nice clothes, who had pity taken on them by prisoners who had been prosecuted just by people like that person. They arrived in secret, these loyalists, and were interesting people. One woman had her daughter still steeped in dogma and allowed her to be that way even though she had been unfairly imprisoned. And Solzhenitsyn says that this is the price that someone pays for untrusting their God-given soul to human dogma. So these loyalists refused to see the ideology for what it was because they were once officials of the party or benefited from it. They were the kind of people not arrested before 1937 and they only noticed their own arrests. They wondered if there was a coup or if there was wreckage or if their arrest was necessary to prove something about the ideology, but they assumed that it must have been done for a good reason. They thought that if Lenin were alive, that they wouldn't have been arrested. They came up with different explanations to explain why they had been arrested, like it being the cunning work of foreign intelligence services, it being wreckage on a very large scale, it being a plot by local NKVD men, there being treason in the ranks of the party, and their arrests being a historical necessity for the development of the society. And in all of these variations of explanations, no one accused Stalin. They themselves were to blame, and that if Stalin actually knew, he would set them free. There was also another line of reasoning that they figured out that if more people were arrested, then the people in charge would realize that they had made a mistake and so they had to name as many people as possible. And they seemed to have forgotten that they themselves had imprisoned people with these tactics. They told on their cellmates, they tried to complain to each other in secret to avoid incriminating the party for, say, bad conditions, and they seemed to live in a fantasy, ignoring what was going on, and pretending that they were the only ones who actually understood what was going on. They wrote letters begging for forgiveness, swore their loyalty to the great genius, that being Stalin, denounced others in their cases, and asked to be returned to their former top positions. There's a conversation between Solzhenitsyn, his cellmate, who he already knows, and a newly arrived Marxist professor. I'll just give a brief sample. Hello, hello, you're not too crowded. No, it's alright. Have you been in the jug a long time? Long enough. Are you past the halfway mark? Just. Look over there, how poverty-stricken our villages are. 
straw thatch cooked huts, an inheritance from the Tsarist regime. Well, but we've already had 30 Soviet years. That's an insignificant period historically. It's terrible that the collective farmers are starving, but have you looked in all their ovens? And I liked a bit of a feminism argument. So Solzhenitsyn says, but why is it that the father of a family used to be able to feed his family by his own labor and that now two or three in the family have to work? Because there was unemployment previously and the wife couldn't get work and the family went hungry. Furthermore, the wife's working is important for her equality. Solzhenitsyn says, what the devil do you mean by equality? And who does all the household work? The husband has to help. And how about you? Did you help your wife? I am not married. So each of them used to work during the day and now both of them have to work in the evenings too and the woman has no time for the main thing, for bringing up the children. She has quite enough. They are mainly brought up by the kindergarten, school and all. Well, and how are they bringing them up? They grow up to be hooligans and petty thieves and the girls run free and loose. Not at all. Our youth have lofty principles. That's what the papers say, but our papers tell lies. They are much more honest than the bourgeois newspapers. You ought to read the bourgeois newspapers. Just give me the chance. That's not necessary at all. So Janison goes into some detail about loyalists in terms of basic areas of camp life. They thought that escapees were in the way of economic construction. They didn't mingle with the political prisoners, the other ones. They thought that it was okay for workers to be beaten and that these workers didn't deserve food if they weren't building for communism. So sluggers' work was necessary. These loyalists also tried to get nice positions that didn't require a lot of knowledge, like being a medical statistician or a librarian. Chapter 12. Knock, knock, knock. Before electronic cameras and recording devices, the organs of the archipelago had to have eyes and ears. There was no need for a wicked gleam in a person's eye for them to be an informant or what was called a stool pigeon. People wound up being surprised that they were told on for having an unregistered guest or not enjoying some mass event enough or singing enough praise to the party. So you had informers. Recruitment was done discreetly and unexpectedly. And the first thing that was asked of someone who's a potential informer was, are you a Soviet person? And they had to write down anyone they knew who was or wasn't anti-Soviet. Citizens were offered pay at first, but then later on that turned into very little like a pack of tobacco. And then prisoners becoming informers, they were threatened with manual labor or general work or penalty rations. It usually worked, although sometimes it was difficult to pressure recruits. So Janison describes his own experience. He was offhandedly asked to go into a corridor and up a stairway at first, he thought he was going to be interrogated, but there was soft music playing, and the officer asked if he was still a Soviet person after all he had been through. So Janitsyn also had to avoid getting a new term, so that's something to think about. He tells the officer that it's not in his character to go around deliberately listening to people's conversations and reporting them. He had difficulty being able to remember. After some stalling, as in taking time, not styling as in the person, Solzhenitsyn is told that he has a wife in Moscow and that thieves could be planning to steal clothes off the backs of people walking on the streets. I reread this to make sure that he had actually talked about Solzhenitsyn's wife in particular, like that's what was said, but I found it odd that Solzhenitsyn didn't like talk about his feelings here at all, but I'm pretty sure that's, that's what the security officer did. Solzhenitsyn then, because he really doesn't like the thieves, 
says that he could report thieves if thieves were planning an escape. And then he has to come up with a nickname. So he's kind of tricked into becoming an informer because he agrees to the thief bit of it because they, they use that to get to him. He ends up not actually having to report on anything. After exile later, he has a medical condition in 1956 and he's unexpectedly asked to be an informant and he only gets out of it due to his medical condition. There's someone named Yu who decides to be an informer and actually writes the first denunciation of the person he's going to denunciate with the person because his family is being threatened to be sent to camp. Recruiters just have to find the right mental key to get people to agree. With Solzhenitsyn, it was a thieves. For you, when given money, he declined it, but him being worried about his family was his key. You, though, eventually says that he's Christian and that's enough to get recruiters off his back. The Soviet Union could never come to terms with Christianity. Solzhenitsyn's words. Okay, that was my recap. The chapters were very short compared to the previous ones, that's why we just went through 12 chapters. Here are my overall themes and comments. The first thing I thought about was I already said that volume 2 seems to be going into more details of the conditions and focusing on specific aspects of these destructive labor camps versus corrective labor camps. That's in comparison with volume 1 which is about the arrests and what happens after the revolution and then the law maturing and then what ends up happening. So that's kind of like an overview. Another thing I thought about was how is the idea of he who does not work does not eat any different from the criticisms against capitalism? Because this was a Soviet saying that if you don't work but collectively then you can't eat. So how is that any different from someone saying like you have to earn your own way? And I was thinking if he who does not work does not eat, at least when he who works has proper boundaries between what is his work and what is someone else's work, that results in he who works not having his labor just given over to he who exists. Yes, people can exploit others, but the boundaries of an individual are important because it ties the fruits of labor to the one who does it. And setting things up as in the bourgeoisie or owners of the means of production, that's also work. It seems like a difficult problem to solve, but sort of baked into this collectivist idea that we've seen play out in the Gulag Archipelago is that if there's no ownership, then the exploitation is inevitable versus the exploitation that can come from abuses of power when there is ownership. So I just think like the, the exploitation is baked in when you don't define those boundaries because anyone can exploit the labor of another person. Whereas it's more difficult to do that because you're actually defining who does the work and like tying the fruits of someone's labor to them. I thought the mention of Gorky, some famous Russian uh, literature person at the time and him lying for his own self-interest, that was interesting and how it shows how important it is for writers or cultural figures to tell the truth but often decided to tell the narrative of the, the state or some narrative that benefits them. It seemed to have been done for self-preservation. I don't know if I can blame him, but it's just something to know. There's a case, an Ospensky case, that's interesting because there's something immoral, in this case, killing one's father. It's seen as acceptable because it's done out of class hatred. And I see a parallel of that story with the modern day acceptance of immoral acts being seen as okay if done out of social justice. I don't think modern society is at that 
important yet, but it's there in theory, particularly in terms of media portrayal. One specific example is the Macy's store employee that had maybe said a taboo racial slur and then him being beaten up. Being beaten up using physical violence is objectively more harmful than saying a word that causes someone harm, even one that has some historical weight behind it, and I'm not gonna get into that. Another example is with the McCloskeys, like trespassing on private property, and then because that trespassing was being done for a good reason, people are arguing over whether or not this is wrong or right. So you can argue about whether or not trespassing is wrong and private property should be protected and to what extent, but it's considered wrong by law. But if it's done by a certain group of people because they're doing it for the right causes, then that's somehow okay. So the cause behind something has the power to shift focus away from the actual act and whether or not that act in principle is immoral or moral. It seems very very concerning and now i mean i don't know what i'm going to put this video out but just today i went online and seen that the united states cdc wants to not give preference to elderly people to get vaccines even though they're the most at risk group because they're not diverse enough it's not the same thing because it's not like an act like murdering someone or stealing but it is the flip side in terms of giving benefits and you're not doing it based on some logic of something that's objectively good like you have something objectively bad like stealing but you're doing it based off of the cause behind it it's just if you can decide who is good or evil with a narrative then Things that we know are objectively not good, like killing people, somehow can be framed as okay. The US isn't there yet, but I, I really think it's ideologically there and it only goes from there. The book seems to highlight the battle between the individual and the collective. Capitalism rewards individual efforts, which ends up benefiting everyone else through the goods created, but simultaneously leads to large disparities in wealth over time, which then lead to social unrest. Socialism, yes, socialism as well, and communism as outlined in the Gulag Archipelago, takes the effort of the individual for free through the use of force and hands it over to the collective. As I was saying that, I just thought about this socialism versus communism thing. What's very interesting is that Solzhenitsyn continuously uses the word socialism, 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 as well as communism. Whereas a lot of people want to like say, distinguish between socialism and communism. And I agree they are different, but they are also like, they're two sisters. <laughs> and I, I do think people make that distinction too much when communism is like just an extreme version of socialism. Another thought I had was that wrong think was being more harshly punished than actual crimes considering the punishment of deserters, the husband and wife aiding a deserter, that's like they got the special treatment for political prisoners. So because they dissented from the state's ideology, that was, that was just horrible. Another thing that stuck out was the importance of being creative and using your thoughts to help you along while you were doing difficult work. And at one point, Solzhenitsyn mentions humans being reduced to animal because they don't have their intellectual and spiritual aspects acknowledged and that really struck me. The communist revolution in Russia resulted in worse conditions than what people claim to be fighting against. So the Tsarists treated their prisoners and laborers better at the end of the day despite there being issues. Oh, a big one is foreign intellectuals being very self-assured of their opinions. The political chapter, chapter 10, in place of politicals, 
That was terrifying and fascinating. I think it's worth a read on its own if you have the time. People seem to have a very, very rigid and mean streak. Friends told on each other. People were being imprisoned for nothing at all. The man being imprisoned for making a collective farm. That really sticks out. So he's doing this thing that's supposedly good in terms of the ideology, but he's sent to jail because he did it better than the state and he did it before the state. I think that shows that it's not really about the ideology. The ideology is just a guise for power, I think, over, over other people. Even Marx's writing at the end of the day is thrown out the window when officials want to do certain things. They do whatever they want. The ideology is just a ruse. This reminded me of the anti-racism stuff. People don't listen to all of a person's word, say like Martin Luther King, they just pick and choose. But I also think it's the same with almost any text, like if you think of the Bible, I think that's another example of people picking what they want from it. So ideology just seems to be a vehicle through which people rationalize whatever they want, <laughs> basically. So those were my overall notes and comments. As a reminder, I have just walked you through the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which is a recounting of the Soviet Union under Stalin rule from 1918 to 1956 after a communist revolution. Pretty hard stuff to read. The next video will be finishing volume two. And I'm gonna end with a quote. So it's difficult to choose between one quoted passage about hunger and about how hunger reduces everyone to the worst version of themselves and how that was used in the Gulag Archipelago to influence people to work or one about people's bones from corpses of workers being mixed into the cement and remaining forever preserved in the Bellamore Canal, or a quote about ideology and how intellectualizing everything and not seeing the end results, the impact of people makes people blind to what they're advocating for. Hard to pick. <laughs> I think I'm gonna go with ideology one. No matter how clear-cut the declarations of the class teaching, openly displayed and proclaimed everywhere, that the sole fate the enemy deserves is annihilation, Still, it was impossible to picture to oneself the annihilation of each concrete two-legged individual possessing hair, eyes, a mouth, a neck, and shoulders. One could actually believe that classes were being destroyed, but the people who constituted the classes should be left, shouldn't they? The eyes of Russians who had been brought up in other generous and vague concepts, like eyes seen through badly prescribed eyeglasses, could in no wise read with exactitude the phrases of the cruel teaching. Not long before, apparently, there had been months and years of openly proclaimed terror, yet it was still impossible to believe. Let's just hate groups of people and not realize that we're hating the actual individuals and every mean, horrible thing we say we're directing at the actual individual people who are members of that group. And that, that eventually leads to really horrible things. So that's my video. If you found this work useful, you can support it at justlinkingoutloud.tv slash support. I hope you have a good day despite hearing about what horrors humanity is capable of.
Don't forget to follow me on other platforms. You can subscribe to my newsletter at justthinkingoutloud.tv slash newsletter. Or you can also find my podcast. Just search for it. That way you'll always be able to find me in the future. And again, don't forget to support this content if you like it so that more people can hear about it and be aware of what a lot of our collectivist ideology can possibly turn into as well as to having this voice get a bit louder in the conversation about well a lot of these topics just thinking out loud.tv support bye